This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. How do, friends? Welcome to the broadcast. Hope you'll stay with me for the duration. Last show here at 550 Queen Street, a west in Toronto, from our flagship station, AM 740. And a, um, a big hello to all our affiliates down the line and those listening online. Uh, we are moving to a new facility, state-of-the-art facility, just uh, down the road, down Lakeshore, towards the the Grand Old Lady by the Lake, they call it, the Canadian National Exhibition Grounds. And um, so I'll be broadcasting from there starting next week. And uh, kind of mixed emotions about it. It's been nearly, what, three and a half, almost four years now here for me. And uh, the building has a lot of character. Uh, now I have not seen a ghost here. I have I have felt some odd things late at night around the elevator. How about you, Tim? Ever had any ghosty experiences here? No, no, no. That's true. You haven't been here that long. Uh, but the elevators do strange things here sometimes at night. And uh, George Genescu, the venerable George Genescu, Doctor Genescu, I should say, who hosts the show uh, preceding mine here on AM seven forty has had some nightly visitors. An old radio colleague, friend of his, has popped his head into the studio on a couple of occasions, and uh, uh, I was here the night it happened. I walked into the studio, and George was just stunned, and then he told me what happened. Anyway, uh, so maybe they'll pack up the ghosts along with everything else. I came in here, and there was nothing on the walls. All the CD racks are gone. Uh, All the office furniture is gone. I feel like a ghost walking in here. Anyway... Very excited about the move. Boy, lots going on. When is there not lots going on? But do you get the sense that things are just starting to come to a head? I don't know. I do. I get the sense that trouble's brewing. Uh, but maybe I'm just a, a pessimist. But you've got the, uh, the, the, no- the North Korean missile threat escalating. Uh, the whole Korean peninsula on a knife's edge. Uh, you've got... I don't know if you're into the gold, if you're a gold bug, uh, but uh, Friday was a real, it was Black Friday. Just gold was just smashed 
fell right through all the floors of support and uh, off off market trading. It's still going down, and there's talk. We had Gerald Salenti on the program a couple of weeks ago. Still getting a lot of email about that. Uh, or last week he was on the program uh, talking about uh, you know how the fix is in in terms of the uh, this financial mess. And I'm following a lot of uh, people like Jim Sinclair, Richard Russell, who are talking about and a former. Assistant uh, Secretary of the Treasury of the United States, Paul Craig Roberts, under Reagan, the architect of Reaganomics, has come out and said that there is massive manipulation in the gold market on the part of the uh, the Federal Reserve and uh, Goldman Sachs, um, and it might even be illegal what's going on. The point, I guess, that I'm saying is that programs like this are going to become increasingly important. I'm not here to toot my own horn, but what I'm saying is I think what we talk about, and I say we, the people that I have on this program, I think we're on the right track here. I think we're giving you the straight goods. What you're hearing on this program, this is the way the world works, as ugly and as sinister as that may be at some point. I say the way the world really works, talking about that, uh, the next 50 minutes or so, we're going to talk about the world the way the world really works. In fact, I'm cribbing that line from the back of Joseph Farrell's brand new book, Covert Wars and Breakaway Civilizations, The Secret Space Program, Celestial Psyops and Hidden Conflicts. And he's here to talk about covert wars and breakaway civilizations. And it's always a pleasure to welcome Joseph P. Farrell to the program. Hello, Joseph. How are you, my friend? Pretty good. Thanks for having me back on, Richard. Well, let's just dive right in. Obviously, sure. we could do uh, you know month, a month of shows on this <laughs> on this topic, and you've you know this is uh, an ongoing series for you. You've tackled this mm-hmm. topic from various angles, and uh, I, I like how you say in in the in the preface, this is not an exciting book, but it had to be written. I, I mean, nothing could be further from the truth, Joseph. This is it's exciting may not be the right word. I mean, this is it's. Uh, you, one can't help but be gobsmacked after reading this book. I mean, it's <laughs> this is frightening stuff. And let's so let's just dive right in. What do you sure. mean by a breakaway civilization? Well, actually, that is a term uh, and insight of of the ufologist Richard Dolan, uh, whom I have a great deal of respect for. Um, he wrote a two volume history of UFOs and the national security state in in the United States. That that are, to me, kind of a Bible of, of the topic. And in considering that, what he, he's basically trying to get at is that the Cold War formed a kind of a matrix of various covert operations, bureaucracies that were involved in covert operations, the development of black technologies, and so on. And I was intrigued enough with that idea just from my Nazi research and from the historical fact that the United States brought in so many of the Nazi scientists into this country to work on advanced projects. And this particular book, what, what motivated me to write it is, is something that you, you began your show with, and that's the manipulation of gold. <laughs> okay. Yes, it all ties together, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, what got me interested in it was the idea that, all right, if you're going to be developing advanced research projects to basically confront the UFO phenomenon, to, to emulate the technology and the performance that, that are seen and exhibited in UFOs, you're going to require an awfully huge amount of finance, and it's got, all got to be black budget, <laughs> okay? 
And that kind of led me to the conclusion, well, at the end of the war, the Axis powers, particularly Nazi Germany and, and Imperial Japan, had literally respectively plundered both Europe and, and Asia of, of just an enormous amount of, of bullion. And I suspect that, that what happened at the end of the war, in fact, it's, it's not even a suspicion, it's, it's pretty much a given, that this vast pile of plunder that, that the Axis powers were able to acquire through their conquests and military occupations, that this was part of the negotiating leverage that they used to maintain certain of their elites in power and in position. And they negotiated very quietly behind the scenes with, with the major Western uh, prime banks and the central banks and so on. Now, the interesting thing, Richard, that I ran into while investigating this whole topic was in 1947, an operative for the emerging American intelligence complex, a fellow by the name, of, a very well-known fellow, as a matter of fact, by the name of Ed Lansdale, became aware of this vast Japanese plunder operation. And he actually flew to brief General MacArthur in Japan about the size and extent of, of all of this Japanese loot, which we have to understand, Richard, was entirely off the books. In other words, it, its plunder existed nowhere in the official tally of, of bullion reserves. And MacArthur, in turn, thought it was significant enough that he had Lansdale fly from Japan to Washington, D.C., to brief President Truman on the existence of all this loot. And Truman made what I think is one of the most significant financial and political decisions for the entire Cold War period, decisions I think that we're still living with. And that decision was that he decided to classify the existence of all of this loot to make it top secret and to use it as the basis to create a, a completely top-secret system, hidden system of finance. So in other words, Richard, this, this to me has profound implications. In other words, the Allies were able yes. to, uh, at the, the, uh, once the Japanese uh, surrendered, uh, and as you've pointed out in previous books, uh, particularly Nazi International, the, mm -hmm. the German army uh, surrendered, but the Nazis never did, Right. But does that mean then that Truman and the West were able to get their hands on this plunder? Or some of well, it? Well, I, I think that what was done that with this loot was that, that a dirty deal was struck. And, and let me get back to the implications of Truman's decision, because what this meant was you, you created a huge hidden system of finance, a, a slush fund for, for covert operations, for black projects, and so on and so forth. And this, in turn, required the tacit participation of, of major Western prime banks in the scheme. And I think they, in turn, used this to, to create enormous amounts of, of leverage in the system and, and off-the-books leverage at that. In other words, you're dealing, to a certain extent, with a system that's fraudulent, and I'll try and get back to that. But the implication of Truman's decision was that you turned over a gigantic system of finance to intelligence agencies. 
not to the central or prime banks. Right, right. So in other words, I think this is something that's, that's very much missing in current expositions of, of the financial mess we're in. Most people are focused on these banks. I'm focused on the, on the intelligence agencies. Now, the other aspect of this, as you, as you point out, is, is the involvement of, of what I'm calling the Nazi International. And I've, I've been maintaining a hypothesis for some time that the real hidden purpose of the early Bilderberg meetings was precisely to work out the details between the, the surviving Nazi elite and these Western bankers on how to move all this loot and then what to do with it. And if you look at the early Bilderberg meetings, you, of course, have Prince Bernhardt of the Netherlands, who's, who's a German prince, an SS officer, was a manager in IG Farben and so on. So right. that gives us right. know, that gives us the clue right there. And then you have Prince Philip of the Windsors, uh, yes. who's I believe whose sisters married into the Hess family. Yes, exactly. And additionally, you know, one of the early participants at these Bilderberg meetings was a fellow that's very well known in the banking uh, world, a fellow by the name of Hermann Josef Ops, who was the CEO of Deutsche Bank. And he was also, at one time, the paymaster to Adolf Hitler and the entire Reich government because he ran the handling bank in Berlin that handled all the German government accounts. <laughs> so all this Nazi plunder, and uh, and I'm guessing because of the Japanese, I mean, that was a full surrender, that perhaps the, the OSS at that time got their hands on a lot of their gold. But the, But the Nazi plunder, was it a case where the the Nazis that fled to South America presumably with a lot of this plunder they simply realized that they had to play they had to play ball i mean let's face it a lot of the intelligence apparatus in the united states uh merged with the uh, the nazi uh, intelligence uh, right. when the dulles brothers brought people over uh, like uh, reinhard galen and so forth right. um it was it was well, let's let's take a time out we'll get back into that uh, exactly sure. Um, you know h- how the, the, the this Nazi International and the uh, the Western banks or the Western intelligence groups are working together, and then we'll continue to pursue this idea of a breakaway civilization. What are these sure. elites doing with this vast untold wealth? Joseph Farrell, covert wars and breakaway civilization. Stay with us in the pantheon of uh, conspiratorial historians. Uh, Joseph P. Farrell, obviously. Uh, has a very prominent uh, place. His latest is Covert Wars and Breakaway Civilizations, The Secret Space Program, Celestial PsyOps, and Hidden Conflicts. Uh, And uh, few people are able to connect the dots as well as Joseph. And and this is a uh, far-reaching work. Everything from Nazi uh, plunder uh, and uh, uh, UFOs, uh, secret space programs, the JFK assassination, all sort of connected uh, quite uh, nicely in this book. Uh, so let's get back to this uh, this, this Nazi plunder. Uh, mm-hmm. Alan Dulles brings over uh, Reinhard Galen, Hitler's mm-hmm. top spy, uh, who's, depending on, I mean, there are different theories. Some say he had a limited role. Others say that he was basically running the uh, the OSS, which later became the Central Intelligence Agency. Mm-hmm. So, is is this a clue that, in fact, the the um, the Nazi Internationale essentially took over the United States? Uh, you know, at, you know, the NASA and the intelligence service and, and and the Pentagon. 
Well, that's an excellent question. I, I, I would put it rather differently. I don't think it's so much a matter that the, these, this group of Nazis took over, but they were certainly influential in the sense that they constituted a, a significant faction of, of influence within what, what President Eisenhower would later call the military-industrial complex. But you certainly had uh, prominent American business interests. You know, the Rockefellers obviously play into this. Uh, American aerospace and defense corporations like Lockheed and so on will play into this. And certainly you have intelligence gurus like, like Alan Dulles or Richard Bissell or, or George Cabell and, and people of that sort at this time in the Central Intelligence Agency. So you've got several different factions, I think, within this breakaway group, and I would certainly say that this post-war Nazi group, at least for a certain period of time, maintains a great deal of influence with, within this structure. You, you have only to think of the fact that uh, these German scientists were more or less able to reproduce within, within NASA the kind of uh, the exact same chain of command that they had in, in Nazi Germany. So. Right. So, right. you know, that, that's, that's a certain amount of influence right there. Um, at what point... I think, sorry, yeah, Joseph, I was just going to say, at what point did the, the elites who had this wealth at their disposal, and we're, I guess we're talking about various intelligence groups and so forth, mm-hmm. at what point did they make the decision that they had to, they had to apportion a, a sizable amount of that into uh, developing advanced weaponry that w- might one day be used against extraterrestrial civilizations? Oh, excellent question. I I think this is something that really begins uh, even possibly during World War II and certainly within two or three years uh, after the conclusion of the war. And the reason I say that, I'm working on a sequel to to the book right now, and it's very clear when you examine uh, in, in deeper fashion some of the players in this breakaway group or breakaway civilization, it's very clear that the American military is considering all hypotheses that it can to account for the UFO phenomenon. They're considering certainly the extraterrestrial hypothesis. They're certainly considering a terrestrial uh, hypothesis of of advanced Soviet uh, aerodynes. They're even considering advanced Nazi aerodynes. So in other words, all, all the options are open. But here's the key. If you go back to Richard Dolan's uh, crucial and, and I think absolutely accurate insight in the fact that this breakaway group emerges out of the Cold War culture, in that respect then, when they're looking at the UFO phenomenon and they're also looking at the Soviet Union, their, their response is going to be that our first and most immediate task is, is to contain and find out what the capability of the Soviet Union is, but they're also going to be considering as a longer-term potential threat, and, and we have to remember, UFOs show up more or less uh, spike in their activity as a response to human nuclear achievement. So the mentality of this culture is going to be to perceive them as a potential threat. So they're going to have to derive a, a crash program to be able to reconnoiter the Soviet Union, and that technology has to have the potential also to be applied to the other principal problem that they have, and that's the UFO and figuring out where the heck do these things come from and what are they. So you find uh, an example of this would be in 1947, 
almost immediately after the the Kenneth uh, Arnold sighting of of UFOs up in Washington, the Rand Corporation begins a UFO study. And essentially, it concludes all of the hypotheses I've outlined above. It concludes uh, some terrestrial possibilities behind the phenomenon. It, it concludes that there might be an extraterrestrial possibility behind the phenomenon. So the race will be on in this covert world to fund technology development that can at least emulate some of the performance characteristics of UFOs and also to fund a reconnaissance technology that can do double duty uh, spying on the Soviet Union and then, of course, deep space probes to find out if perhaps these things are coming from close by. So with that said, you're obviously going to require an enormous and, and completely hidden system of finance. And I think this is where you find the, the pressure arising, at least on the part of, of the Anglo-American financial elite, to make this dirty deal with, with the defeated elite of, of the Axis powers to get a hold of all that plunder. Right. Yeah, which leads us into this discussion of a secret space programming. We're, we're covering, obviously, right. a lot of ground in a hurry here because we only have the hour. Uh, but for, you know, and, and these elites did a pretty good job mm-hmm. uh, at, at keeping a, a, a tight lid on this. I mean, we're, we're now, you know, in the last 20 years, we're beginning to, 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 to hear about things like Area 51, right. um, which used to be called the Water Down Strip because Alan Dulles came from Water Down, New York, and uh, supposedly, you know, uh, I've talked to some members of an organization called the Roadrunners, and these there's the people that were the, the, the military that worked on the base, or they may have worked on the base. They can't tell you, uh, and they will swear up and down that no, Area 51 was all about developing the uh, the A uh, the A12 and the U2 and and uh, right. and so forth, the SR71, these super spy planes uh, that they and they used the UFO. Uh, they concocted the UFO story as a distraction, as a, as a cover story for what was really going on there. But then along comes a guy like Gary McKinnon, right. this uh, Brit uh, who hacks into these U.S. government uh, computers looking for UFO information, and what does he find? <laughs> well, he, he has consistently maintained that he found evidence of, of a secret um, U.S. space fleet and the interesting thing here, Richard, is if you go back and look at the memoirs of, of Ronald Reagan, and I'm, I, to this day I'm kind of surprised that this made it past the censors, but Reagan in his memoirs uh, discloses the fact that when he was briefed coming into office, he was told that the United States had an off-world personnel transport capacity of 300 personnel. Now, if you do the math on the on the space shuttle, <laughs> that little number there it tells you that that whatever the U.S. had, it's not all being covered by the space shuttle. <laughs> so, no, that's not so going to get it done. Means, yeah, exactly. There's there's something else that that exists, and you know when you when we come back, hopefully we can get into this bearer bonds scandal because to me this was a huge and hugely significant set of stories that the Western media just altogether dropped like a hot potato. <laughs> and I think the reason why is, is it began to, to expose this hidden system of finance that, that was erected after World War II. And the amounts of money were so astronomical that, that I think it's fairly clear that it might be a, a, part, a component of this secret space program. 
And then and 9-11 figures into this as well, and we'll get into that hopefully if time permits. And if not, we'll do a part two, uh, Joseph, but, <laughs> or, and a part three. But <laughs> uh, So uh, this Nazi plunder and the, the, the plunder from the Imperial Army in Japan after World War II, this money is going into these black op programs which are developing deep space platforms that are out there right now as we speak, uh, and, and this is what Gary McKinnon sort of stumbled upon, uh, and found evidence for when he was hacking into this government, these government computers. Uh, and so, again, we, you know, Ben Rich, his same famous utterances on his deathbed, supposedly, when oh, he yeah. said, actually, this wasn't on his deathbed. This was, he was lecturing at this point. This was in the early 90s, and he said to some engineer, right. engineering students. Those, yeah, I think those were 1993, 95, somewhere in there. Right, but I think he repeated it on his deathbed to a reporter. Oh, yeah, but in, yeah he, he did. During he did. a lecture, he was telling some engineering students, we now have the technology to take E.T. home. E.T. home. That's what he was talking about. Well, there's another interesting quotation by Ben Rich from the same lecture, and and that was that that we the uh, Lockheed was under contract to take E.T. home, which is very, very suggestive uh, as to what part of the agenda might have been in this secret space program. And, And Again, I think that agenda emerges from the mentality of of this uh, covert operations, covert uh, development uh, bureaucracy, if you will. So what are we talking about here? Are we talking about uh, colonies on Mars already? Uh, You know, we're we're, we're talking, we're we're toying around with the idea of maybe one day sending uh, man to Mars, but it sounds like we've been there already for some time. It could be. I, I tend at at this juncture to to hold the question open. Although my my druthers and inclinations would be to say no, it's it's not progressed to that point. But Ben Rich did say yet another very interesting thing, and and this clues us in that that there was some real behind the scenes development of very different principles of science, and that is he said we found an error in the equations. And now we can take E.T. home. Now, that's very suggestive because it means that that this may have been a crash program from the outset. And and I think this is what he's cluing us into, is that this is something that began shortly after World War II. When you say crash program, you mean recovering uh, alien propulsion systems? No, by crash program, I simply mean that it was a program that was designed to to accomplish things quickly. Ah, In other words, it was perceived, the UFO would have been perceived as, as a national security threat and certainly the more so that you entertain an extraterrestrial hypothesis. So this means that they would have invested huge sums of money. And, and the reason is, is rather interesting, and, and I don't want to get started before a big break here, but, but the reasons for, for thinking that it would have involved huge amounts of finance is, is something I think we need to get into. Well, we have a few minutes before the break. Let's, what okay. kind of money are we talking about? I've heard figures that, you know, it's 60, something like, Sixty billion dollars a year going into these black ops. I don't know. What, give me a, give me some figures. Well, the black budget itself. When I say a hidden system of finance, I'm talking something even deeper and blacker than the so-called black budget. In other words, if this is not money coming from the U.S. taxpayer. This is something that is entirely off the books. It's being run by the intelligence agencies in collusion with with the central banks and, and prime banks of the world, and. What got me thinking about this was were all the stories that emerged within the last oh five or six years about the bearer bonds these these bearer bonds that were supposedly gold backed 
in denominations that were, you know, $500 million or even in some cases a billion dollars. And, you know, this is, this is an astronomical sum of money that when you add all these bearer bonds together, uh, all the scandals, you're coming up with a figure in excess of $6 trillion. And we were told, Richard, that all these things were counterfeit. Now, the problem I had with that is, in many cases, these bonds were found in strong boxes of various branches of the United States Federal Reserve uh, banking system. And these, these boxes were very elaborately uh, contrived if they, if they were counterfeit. And the bonds themselves were bonds that were issued not by the U.S. Treasury, which is the normal way that bonds are issued, but directly by the Federal Reserve. That tells us right there that we're dealing with something very interesting. Why would you go to all the trouble to counterfeit something that doesn't exist in reality? So you're saying it does exist. Yeah, that's, well, that's my point. You know, a counterfeiting ring doesn't, doesn't counterfeit a $7 bill. Right, right. <laughs> so so these, are, and these, are, these are backed by gold. That's the claim on these bonds. So even if we are dealing with something that is counterfeit, the sheer, there's, there's something very interesting that we have to glean from, from all these scandals. The sheer amount of money is in, in the trillions of dollars. But is, exactly. is there enough gold? Physical, I mean, this gets us into a whole other, other discussion. I mean, there, uh, sure. there's enough. I've, I've been told if you mine all the, if you gather all the gold that's ever been mined, there's enough to fill maybe an Olympic swimming pool or two. Right. Uh, then if you look at, you know, the, the toxic derivatives out there and all the money that's out there, <laughs> something like 1.4 quadrillion yep, that's right. <laughs> dollars. So, I mean, is there enough gold to even back those bonds. That's another. That's a whole other show, I guess. Listen, we'll take a time out. We'll come back and continue our discussion with Joseph P. Farrell, his latest, and it's a humdinger, folks. Covert Wars and Breakaway Civilizations. Don't go away. Joseph Farrell stays with us. Covert Wars and Breakaway Civilizations, the secret space program, celestial psyops and hidden conflicts, all of the... Of the uh, the Nazi uh, plunder, the plunder from the Imperial uh, Japanese... Uh, army after the Second World War poured into these black op programs uh, where they are developing incredibly advanced uh, spacecraft. Uh, for what purpose? Is it for a terrestrial enemy, perhaps gearing up for uh, a showdown with uh, the Russians? Is it for an extraterrestrial uh, enemy? Who knows? Uh, we just want to touch briefly uh, on these this bearer bond uh um, scandal that you were talking about and uh, how uh, these these bonds supposedly issued by the Fed were backed by gold. But just to cut to the quick, I was, I was saying that there just doesn't seem, there's probably not enough gold anywhere to back those. And, and you make the point in your book that it may have been, in fact, these bonds may have been backed by drugs. Yes, uh, that's one possibility. And, and the other thing that, that we need to, to account for, Richard, is that when I was researching this book, I, I was just literally dumbfounded because I kept seeing so many different figures or, or guesstimates, really, of the actual amount of gold in existence. And these figures would often vary by an entire order of magnitude, which is very disturbing to me. And, and when you add to this fact that it is very likely that all of this Japanese plunder, the, the bullion that they sucked out of Asia, was most likely cut, kept out of the figures that are being quoted to begin with. 
So in other words, there may not be enough gold, and probably isn't, and, and I think you're correct in this, in this estimation, that there probably isn't enough gold to cover all these bonds. But there may be a lot more gold than they're telling us. And that's, that's the first problem. The other problem is, is I think that they're, they have rehypothecated all of this gold. In other words, they, it's, it's very much similar to, to the mortgage scandal, where banks would put several different mortgages out on the same piece of property. <laughs> so, in other words, as I said before, they're creating a huge system of, of uh, leverage, but it's also a fraudulent system. Now, many people have told me this this system ultimately will never work, and of course not. I'm simply telling telling you or recording what my research has, has led me to conclude, that this was more or less what they did in order to raise the vast sums of money that they needed. Now, the question I think that you're implying here is, why did they need so much money? And I think the answer lies in part in the mentality of, of the people that are doing this. It's the Cold War. They're trying to deal with two very different types of threats, possibly three. A Soviet one, we've got indications of some other group independently pursuing this advanced technology. And then finally, we've got the hypothesis of, of an extraterrestrial presence or threat. And that's the one that they're going to have to develop the, the most advanced and sophisticated technology. And I think they're doing, Richard, the same exact, or following the same exact playbook with the perceived ET threat as they're following with the Soviet Union. First, you engage it. Then you contain the phenomenon by any means necessary, technological, psychological operations, uh, manipulating the perceptions of, of society, of UFOs, and so on. And then finally, the last two stages are, are rollback and ultimately defeat. So in other words, if they're thinking along those lines, they're going to require an enormous sum of money to, to develop the technology to at least bluff whoever they think is behind the UFO phenomenon into a stalemate, and if possible, roll it back while they're trying simultaneously, I think, through through space probes and so on, to find out where the heck these things are coming from. <laughs> okay. Now, the reason I think that they would have perceived UFOs as a threat is is very, very clear, and I spent some time in the book outlining this aspect of the problem. And that is, um, UFOs have done some amazing things in connection with the nuclear arsenals of the United States and, and the Soviet Union. Sure, sure. Such as turning our ICBMs off, <laughs> then reprogramming the targeting information in the ICBM. And in the case of the Soviet Union, this was done to the extent of actually starting the launch sequence at a particular Russian ICBM base in the Ukraine. So both nations are going to perceive UFOs as definitely a national security threat and, and move mountains of, of money and expertise into developing some means of at least emulating their performance and, and challenging the, the uh, occupants or beings or whatever are, are behind the UFO phenomenon. This is what I think accounts for this vast system of fraudulent finance that we see going on. The uh, the interesting thing here, though, that that I'd like to get at is is these elites that have at their disposal, you know, right. untold wealth and untold. Uh, who knows what kind of technology they have at their disposal? And we'll get into this when we come back. But I'm just I don't get the sense that these people care about you and I. Oh, uh, I don't think they do either. <laughs> uh, so I'm I'm wondering, you know, whether is is that the reason? You know, the world seems to be going. 
you know, hell in a handbasket at the speed of light is because they've already, they're already off world. They don't, they don't care what happens here. But we'll, we'll get into that on the other side as we talk about this culture of total power, a vast system of hidden finance, counterfeiting, fraud, the way the world really works, all revealed in Covert Wars and Breakaway Civilizations with Joseph Farrell. Next week on the program, Ron Patton, the editor of Paranoia Magazine, will be here to talk about, uh, well, all things paranoia, uh, from mind control to the uh, the assassination of John Lennon, etc. Uh, we'll also speak with Crop Circle researcher Patty Greer coming up on the program. Right now, Joseph Farrell stays with us for a few moments yet. Covert Wars and Breakaway Civilizations is his latest. Uh, these elites, give me a sense of, I mean, what kind of uh, technology do they have at their disposal? Because uh, getting back to, again, very quickly to Area 51, you know, the whistleblowers like Bob Lazar talking about Element 115 and their ability to, uh, essentially, it sounded like they were on the cusp of time travel coming out of Area 51. I mean, w- give me a sense of the kind of technology, speculate here, that, that the elites may have at their disposal. If we're going to call them a breakaway civilization, I mean, how, how, how far, you know, w- what kind of a rift is there between their civilization and ours? Well, I think it could be a very significant rift, uh, Richard, and here's why. We've, we've already talked about the statements of, of Ben Rich, the, the former head of the Lockheed Skunk Works, and his clear indication that they had something that was so revolutionary that he could talk in terms of taking E.T. home. Now, obviously, there's always the possibility that he could have been lying or exaggerating in in service of some sort of psychological operation. But I don't think this is the case, and here's why. Uh, On my website, just in the last two weeks, I've been blogging about some interesting things that have been coming out of NASA and then uh, in association with, with DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which incidentally was one of those agencies set up to kind of brainstorm about advanced technologies precisely during the Eisenhower administration when they're dealing with all of these these national security problems at the same time. Now, interestingly enough, NASA, there's a scientist at NASA that has claimed that he has redone the, the warp drive equations of, of the Mexican physicist Miguel Alcibiera. And, and pardon me if I'm not pronouncing the, the surname correctly in, in Spanish, but... Uh, this this was a paper that was seriously published by by a physicist uh, concerning how warp drive would work. Well, this NASA physicist has redone the equations, and dis- and the result was that the idea of a warp drive becomes just practically feasible. So DARPA has come out with the announcement that they want the United States to be warp capable within 100 years. Now, my problem here is is I'm sure that we can we all know the history of covert projects. By the time that we find out about something like for example the stealth fighter, the the projects have moved beyond it in terms of their capability by several decades. So we could indeed, as you said before the break, we could indeed be looking at a group of people that have access to some extraordinarily advanced technology that are so revolutionary that they they make everything that we have or know about in the public sphere seem like nothing but a horse and buggy. Um, it it could be to that to that condition. 
So, you know, I think we have to entertain the possibility of a kind of an alternative three-like scenario that, that they may indeed already have bases. The other thing I want to point out that NASA has said recently, and it, it should give everyone pause, and that is they want to start thinking very seriously about the practical way that they can mine asteroids. And here's the thing that they're talking about. They want to take asteroids in near-Earth orbit and park them <laughs> around the moon and, and mine them. Now, one of the asteroids they're talking about is Eros-433. And if you look up Eros-433, it's, it's a rock about 33 kilometers long and, and maybe 13 to 15 kilometers wide. I don't remember the exact... That's figure. a planet killer. Yeah, exactly. Now, to, to talk about moving such an object implies a technological capacity to do so. So they're giving us little indicators of what they're thinking about. And if they're, if they're admitting that they're thinking about this publicly, my guess is, is that they have some of the technological capability to do it already, at least secretly. So that's, that's my suspicion, and, and I think you're right. I think we have to entertain the idea that these people don't really care about us, and the reason they don't is, you know, they, they, they have their escape valve. They have their lifeboat to, to get off the planet and, and uh, go somewhere else. Uh, I, I want to work in a phone call here in a moment, sure. but let me ask you very quickly, uh, if, if possible, uh, and that is, how does 9-11 figure into this? Well, I think... Again, I think it does, because I'm one of those in, in the decided minority <laughs> within the 9-11 uh, truth movement that thinks that there is the possibility that some sort of directed energy weapon was, was used to pulverize the, the two twin towers at, at the World Trade Center. And, you know, there's so many theories out there, Richard, uh, nanothermite and, and mini-nukes and so on and so forth. but. Uh, I actually, I actually saw a, a a website where someone was claiming that there was a mini nuke that brought the buildings down, and the mini nuke. <laughs> I put quotations around it because this person was advancing the what to me is the absurd idea that this was an underground detonation of a 150 kiloton device. Which, if you've ever, you know, if you've ever seen those big craters that are left for, by underground nuclear detonations, um, <laughs> 150 kilotons is is an order of magnitude greater than than the Hiroshima bomb. So, no, this, these know, buildings were pulverized from the top down. Yeah, I th I, yeah exactly, and and I think that. Uh, I, I think, in all honesty, and, and you know, not certainly endorsing the entire scenario that's implied in, in some of her work, but I do think that, that Dr. Judy Wood at least has the the basic premise that it might have been some sort of directed energy weaponry involved. I think I think we do have to give that some uh, fair hearing, and I don't think it's had a really fair hearing. I agree. No, I, I think she's onto something. I've had her on the show a number of times, and uh, she's often used as sort of a, the straw man's argument by uh, the people in the mainstream media to say, right. to say see how crazy these people are. Um, but so the idea was then to to cover up um, some of these financial shenanigans that were going on through the offices at the World Trade Center Tower. Yes, uh, I present that argument in in the in the book Covert Wars and Breakaway Civilizations. I, I think that there is something to be said for that, and and uh, you know we don't have much time, but there are some uh, American and other researchers that have that have followed that story, and apparently, 
even the Office of, of Naval Investigations was was looking into some financial malfeasance that was conveniently covered up by the, by the collapse of, of the trade towers. Well, even trade Rumsfeld towers. hinted at that um, yes, uh, sort of right. uh, just days before, a week before, uh, talking right. about the missing billions of uh, dollars. Yeah, a missing $2 trillion. Now, isn't that interesting? Because in the Spanish version of the bearer bond scandal, it was precisely in the amount of $2 trillion worth of bearer bonds. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's say hello to our good media scientist friend, Nelson Thal, who checks in here on The Conspiracy Show. Hey, Nelson, how are you? Hey, very good. How are you doing, Richard? And uh, nice to uh, hear from you, Joseph. Thank you. Uh, Joseph, uh, I got a question for you. You know, we've got the Bush von Bolschwing Bormann connection and um, the Dornberger connection to JFK and Michael Caine. Do you think when Bush, the old man, dies, that some of this stuff will then be released? I'm sure he's keeping the lid on it as long as he's alive. Oh, that's I think a once very he's dead, that will this stuff stuff will store, sort of break off like the Greenland ice shelf. Well, that's a very very interesting question, and to be honest with you, I've never considered it. But my my guess, my intuition, would be his death might kick loose some of it, but I don't think all of it, for the very simple reason that you know we're still waiting uh, down here in the United States to to learn everything about the JFK assassination. <laughs> so, you know. Uh, I, I really, I think a lot of it has been kicked loose even prior to his death. Uh, his his possible and, in my opinion, probable role in the whole Leo Wanta affair, the the theft of Russia's gold reserves, and, and so on and so forth. I think, I think, yeah, it could kick loose some things, but I think there's a lot that that will remain hidden. Nelson, thanks uh, for the call. Good to hear from you. We'll talk in a few weeks on the program. Uh, Joseph, to what extent is the financial mess we're in right now, uh, and again, you, you wouldn't know we're in one going by the mainstream media, but if you look at the real <laughs> unemployment numbers, uh, Greece, uh, youth unemployment now, 60%. In Europe, unemployment in, in some countries worse than the Great Depression. Right. The, the real unemployment figures in the United States uh, probably uh, threefold as to what they're being reported, somewhere around 20% yeah. if you look at underemployment. Yeah. Uh, inflation we all know it's not 1.7 or 2%. We know it's like 8, 10%. Right. Are these same elites, are they behind this? Is this orchestrated? Is this war on, on uh, not only the middle class, but everybody? Well, Richard, I'm, I'm of the opinion that it's partly orchestrated. But I've, I've always maintained, I've consistently maintained for a number of years now that... The way it looks to me is you have some real factional infighting emerging amongst this new world order crowd, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, they're they're like the mafia. They all get together with their family, but capos around the table and smoke cigars and drink brandy, and then after they're done with their meeting, they go issue orders to shoot and kill each other. Uh, I think that's what you have to a certain extent going on right now. Uh, Germany's move to repatriate its gold was was to me a clear signal that there is some some mighty and powerful disunion within the Western financial oligarchy. Uh, so that's part of it. The other part of it, Richard, is I, I get the sense that some of the managers in the central and prime banks themselves sense that they've lost control and that they're scrambling to to keep up with something that's being manipulated from elsewhere. 
And I strongly suspect, again, that the roots of this go back to the decisions that were taken in the Truman administration to keep all of this plunder and loot entirely off the books and to have the intelligence agencies managing it. I think that we could very definitely and possibly be looking at a situation where control has slipped even from the rich and powerful like like the Rockefellers and and the Rothschilds. Um, It may be in other hands. Uh, and then enter this uh, Leo Wanta character who was supposedly had the key uh, yeah. to, uh, to this um, uh, a vast uh, fortune and, and wanted to repatriate it, give it back to the taxpayers and, and could yeah. basically pay off the, uh, well, not the debt, but he could certainly pay off the, uh, the, the deficit and he's being prevented from, from doing so. It's, it's a complicated story. I mean, you're, you're really, you're trying to... Uh, connect the dots going over 70 years of, of, of history. But uh, yeah. all of these things going on today in the headlines have their roots deep going back, as you say, back to the uh, the Truman administration. Well, listen, uh, congratulations on Covert Wars and Breakaway Civilizations. and your, you, my friend. You're hard at work on uh, the sequel. When can we expect that? Well, my publisher says it should be out October 15th. I'm trying to complete the book by the end of June uh, at the earliest end of July at the latest, so maybe it'll be out before that. And just give us a, a taste. Where, where, where are you going with this, this latest one? Well, I'm, I'm going to the idea that, that there has been actual conflict between this group, this, this breakaway group, and, and possibly a, uh, off-world presence, ETs, whatever you wish to call them. Um, I think there's every every indication that something like this has been going on for a while. Last word. I mean, do you, is this is this coming to a head within this year, next year? That I don't know. My guess, again, my sense of of these elites is that they're panicked about something, <laughs> and they're they're rushing to get all their ducks and, and chips in, in in order. So someone someone told them to get your affairs in order. That's uh, that's not good news yeah. for the rest of us plebes. <laughs> All right, Joseph, thank you for this. Good talking to you, my thank friend. Thank you, my friend. All right. Joseph Farrell. And uh, I've linked up to his website on my website, richardserrett.com. Check it out.
Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome aboard, friends. Interesting times, man. Interesting times. You know, this program is going to be, I've said this before, it's going to become increasingly important. It's going to be increasingly required listening if you're following what's going on in the world. Not from the mainstream media. Everything, according to the mainstream media, is honky-dory. You know, the stock markets, every week it's, they're posting all new time highs, uh, which just baffles the mind. There are no fundamentals there. We are in a depression. We are on the cusp of a worldwide depression. But you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know it. We're all sleepwalking towards the apocalypse. Uh, so I, I, I often just sort of skip the, uh, uh, the newspapers, but I do, I do enjoy the classified ads. And here's one. I, I just recently posted this uh, uh, on uh, my, my Twitter. Uh, I should say the mighty Aphrodite found this. It's a Prince George newspaper. This is the classifieds. Check this out, Tim. Wanted. Someone to go back in time with me. This is not a joke. Joke. P.O. Box 1004-1557, 4th Avenue, Prince George, B.C., Postal Code. You'll get paid after we get back. Must bring your own weapons. Safety not guaranteed. I have only done this once before. Come on, who's, who's signing up for that? I, I'm, I'm the first in line. <laughs> I love time travel. And uh, if, you know, this guy must be, or this woman, uh, must have served some time at Nellis, I'm guessing, Nellis Air Force Base or Groom Lake or S4. Maybe she got her hands on some Element 115. Remember Bob Lazar and Element 115? Who knows? Uh, wow. That's where you find the good stuff. Not in the front page. Go back to the classifieds and, and examine those very quickly. Uh, in the second half of the show, I'm going to speak with Colin Hall. He's in the uh, the UK. He just wrote a book. If I can call it a book, it's kind of a scrapbook. It's about 100 pages, and it's called Factor Fiction, The Paris and M6 Crashes. I didn't know anything about the Paris or M6 crashes, but this thing, thing went viral uh, about a year ago. Some uh, motor crashes on the M6 in England and one very similar in Paris. There was some, uh, some talk of some time travel involved in that. So we'll get the scoop from Colin Hall coming up shortly. Uh, but first, I want to talk about the power of mirrors. Why mirrors, you ask? Well, for, uh, for countless ages, really, uh, mirrors or any reflective surface has, has uh, played a prominent role uh, in, in, in divination and spirit communication. And I was recently at a friend's place. Uh, they lost uh, someone. They were in the morning stage, the 40-day, working to the, towards the 40-day memorial, and they had covered all the, uh, uh, the mirrors in the house. Uh, and uh, we're going to find out what that all means. We're going to do that with our regular contributor, paranormal investigator extraordinaire, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. She joins us the second Sunday of every month. She's an American researcher, writer on topics related to spirituality, the occult, and paranormal, and she has written four, 45 books and counting, 45 books and counting, uh, including 10 encyclopedias. Rosemary, how are you? I'm doing great, Richard, but I'll tell you, there's a lot of strange things going on. I've been out on the road now that the weather's warmed up a bit, investigating cases. I've been getting a lot of contacts from people who have weird things going on in their homes. They have poltergeist activity, 
shadow figures, nightmares, strange sounds. They don't know what's causing it, and they need help figuring it out and getting rid of it. And guess who they come to? You. <laughs> so you're the uh, you're the go-to gal when it comes to all things paranormal, which is why we have you on this show every uh, second Sunday of every month. So I wanted to come to have you back on to talk about. I, I want to go back a few years. I don't know when this book came out. It was the dark side of the paranormal. When was that written? Uh, it was actually written over a period of years, and it was a collection of articles. And I brought it out a couple of years ago because uh, I found that my most frequently asked questions fell into the same categories. And I had um, written about them in, in books and in articles. I collected them all into the Guide to the Dark Side of the Paranormal, um, things that would happen most frequently to people. And it's been a very valuable guide for a lot of individuals. Well, I'll tell you uh, what sort of um, brought this to mind for me was um, knew, I knew someone who uh, recently passed away, and we went to visit the family uh, during the, uh, the all-important sort of 40 days leading up to the 40-day memorial. And, uh, you know, this is a, a Greek family. All the, the mirrors in the house were covered. Uh, and in one case, the mirror was turned uh, around, and this this goes this is a this goes back many many years, probably you know hundreds and hundreds of years. This belief that mirrors somehow hold this this power, uh, and that I, I guess the idea is if someone passes away, you 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 cover the mirrors because it's believed in some cultures that mirror opens a portal and you could actually do some damage to the deceased's soul, like maybe suck their soul into some sort of a vortex or another dimension. And then I went back to that old, the, the book of yours that we just mentioned, The Dark Side of the Paranormal, and you've written an entire chapter about the power of mirrors. So I thought we could get into that a little bit tonight. So let's, let's talk about this, this, this uh, um, idea of covering up mirrors when someone passes away. What, did I get that right? Is that what that's all about? Yes, that's a very strong and widespread belief about mirrors. You know, even going back to ancient times, reflective surfaces have been considered to be doorways to the spirit world. In, in, in the ancient times, they used still pools of water or pools of dark liquid like ink to gaze into, to see the gods, to see the dead, to divine the future. And after the advent of um, silvered mirrors, uh, we still had these lingering beliefs that there's something strange about them, that uh, they open up these channels to the spirit world, and spirits can enter our world through uh, these, these portals. Uh, we have a lot of beliefs about the dead, and you mentioned uh, one of them, you know, concerning what happens to mirrors in a house when someone has died, and especially if a body is uh, in the house uh, before burial. Uh, there are a number of beliefs about mirrors, and, and uh, also that um, if the dead see themselves in the mirror, because it's been believed uh, since ancient times that the, the spirit of a dead person lingers around the body for a while, at least until burial. So one superstition is that if the, a dead person uh, sees himself accidentally in a mirror, it uh, shocks the spirit, and it does disrupt uh, his ability then to go into the afterlife. 
there are other beliefs that if the dead see themselves in, in mirrors, uh, they will remain in, in the house. They will not make the transition, and they will uh, be a problem then to the living. And then there's another belief that uh, when there is a dead person uh, in a home or someone has died and the living see themselves in mirrors, uh, it's an omen for their own death. I know another another uh, legend is that one should never look into a mirror at night particularly. Now, this goes back, obviously, before the advent of electricity. But the idea of never looking into a mirror at night while holding a candle, what's that all about? In dim light, things seem to shapeshift in mirrors. If you gaze into a mirror long enough, ev- even in daylight, you have the impression that things in the mirror become distorted even your face. There is uh, an exercise in mirror gazing uh, to attempt to see yourselves in past lives, for example, where you uh, allow your face to dissolve and uh, transform itself. Sometimes people are shocked by what they see. But when you use dim light like candlelight, the physical eye becomes fatigued very quickly, and this enables the psychic eye to take over. Uh, so many believe that it's easier to to have um, visions, you know, psychic visions this way by gazing into a mirror. But there's a dark side to mirror gazing as well. And I often find mirrors to be a problem in some of those cases that I was referencing just a few minutes ago where people have strange activity in their homes. I often find mirrors are one of the problems. When people uh, look into mirrors attempting to see themselves or in past lives or to to contact the dead, um, they're often not prepared for what they see. Sometimes they might see very distorted faces or ugly faces. And, of course, in the back of some people's minds are fears that the demonic is going to jump out at them and uh, their own imagination can uh, conjure up the image of some horrible-looking, monstrous face. And is there anything to this? I mean, do you subscribe to any of this, or is this simply legend and, and folklore? It certainly is part of folklore, but I do believe that mirrors act as portals to the spirit world. I've seen them in too many problem-haunting cases, and I have come to believe that um, they are a conduit. There's something about mirrors that, from an occult perspective, warps space and time. And if there are interdimensional thin spots in a home, for example, uh, perhaps a badly placed mirror could exacerbate that to open up the doorway. Uh, I do believe that we should be very careful about the placement of mirrors in bedrooms. Uh, If mirrors indeed are this doorway, then uh, we should not see ourselves in mirrors while we sleep. When we sleep, we are vulnerable to spirit activity, and many people report visitations at night, uh, especially in the middle of the night. So the prevailing occult wisdom is you should not see yourself in bed uh, in a mirror. You should not have a mirror at the head of the bed, and you especially should not have mirrors at the foot of the bed. 
the foot of the bed is where people often see apparitions and entities when they make nighttime visitations. Hey, well, listen, you're, with me, you're talking to the converted. The, the last thing I want to see when I wake up in the morning is me. <laughs> So, uh, listen, we'll take a time out. We'll come back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, paranormal investigator, as we discuss the power of mirrors and the dark side of the paranormal, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. We're back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and we're sort of dialing it back a few years and discussing one of her previous books, one of, what is it now, 45, 50 books uh, that, that, that you've written, uh, Rosemary, uh, The Dark Side of the Paranormal, and one of the chapters in that book, The Power of Mirrors. Uh, you know, I remember as a, as a child, uh, one of those uh, uh, games that someone would recommend, you know, you'd, you'd go over to a, a sleepover at somebody's house and they'd say, let's play, you know, Mary Bloody Mary. And uh, the object of the, uh, the exercise was to go into the, usually the bathroom, and uh, if, you na- if you said that three times into the mirror, uh, supposedly you would see this bloody visage staring back at you. And uh, thank God I, you know, had the common sense, even at you know nine, ten, eleven years old, not to mess with that. But uh, what, what's what is the, what's the origin of that uh, of of that uh, that legend, Bloody Mary? It's pretty difficult to pinpoint the exact origin because there are so many variations of that story, and they've been around for well over uh, a century now, that at least that we know of. And the Bloody Mary, the the basic story of the Bloody. Um, Mary in the Mirror is uh, that a long time ago there was a girl or a young woman named Mary who had a horrible accident. Uh, in today's terms, she's in a car accident in earlier times. It would have been like a buggy accident or something like that. And her face was very um, scarred and mangled and bloody. When she finally saw herself in a mirror, she was so distressed that she went insane. And in, in some variations of this story, uh, she actually goes into the mirror looking for her old self and becomes trapped in the mirror. And in her despair and anger, uh, then wreaks havoc upon people who look in, into a mirror trying to find her. There are other variations of the story as well. It's, it's a pretty widespread story. And uh, so there are rituals for conjuring up Bloody Mary, and it is primarily uh, a teenage game uh, for excitement and thrill that that, um, you go into a darkened room like a bathroom and stand in front of the mirror, uh, sometimes with a candle, and say her name, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, three times, 13 times, 100 times, uh, there are different formulas. Sometimes um, it calls for spinning around each time you say the name. And then her bloody face is supposed to appear in the mirror. Well, um, that could be frightening enough for a lot of people, but there are other variations that say she's going to come out of the mirror, she's going to claw up your face, dig your eyeballs out with forks. Uh, and, and even uh, in some movie versions of this story, uh, kill the person who summons her. The other interesting aspect, uh, I mean, yes, that's been portrayed in in countless uh, movies, um, uh, horror movies over the years. And, of course, we have Scary uh, Scary Movie 5 coming into the theaters. I'm sure it'll make its presence known in that movie as well. Uh, But the other uh, interesting aspect when it comes to, uh, you know, the legend of mirrors in Hollywood depictions is uh, we come around to the vampire. And vampires 
not being able to see their own reflection in the mirror. Now, was that a creation of Bram Stoker, or does that too have its have its roots, you know, even further back in 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 history? It has a basis in genuine folklore, but it was a fictional invention of Bram Stoker that then became embedded for a long time in vampire lore. Thankfully, uh, modern fictional vampires can see the reflections now. They really wouldn't be able to live in today's world with so many reflective surfaces. But Stoker took folklore about um, how mirrors steal souls, and the vampire is a soulless creature and is cursed and unholy, uh, and so uh, casts no reflection in a mirror. And uh, it was a very artful device in earlier times when people didn't have very many mirrors. Uh, But today, of course, it's uh, very obsolete. Well, it's an interesting connection between souls and the mirror. Uh, you know, there was a time when that was sort of a, a basic way of checking whether someone was still alive. You would hold a small, maybe a compact or a mirror up to their mouth, and if they if they fogged the mirror, there was still soul left in the body. They were still breathing, obviously. Well, that's true. And uh, even in ancient times, people worried about uh, the depths of the mirror and you can literally get sucked into a mirror if you gaze into it for a long period of time. And it, it seems to have no depth to it, no end. So uh, it's easy to understand where a lot of these uh, fears and superstitions and bits of folklore arise. You know, one of the most effective uh, forms of divination that, that I like to use is black mirror gazing. And instead of a silver surface, the mirror is... black, and when you gaze into that surface in dim light, such as with candles on either side, then you really are drawn into this this black depth that seems to have no bottom to it, and it is easy for the clairvoyant vision to kick in. Is that what they call scrying? It is scrying, yes, and I teach workshops. I call them um, the necromantium, the the place to, to contact the dead and coach people on how to use mirror gazing as a way to make some sort of contact with dead loved ones. People have all kinds of experiences. Even if they ask to see someone who's passed over, they may get a spirit guide. I've had extraterrestrials come through, unknown entities uh, of of unknown origins, and, of course, people see into their, their own past in terms of past lives and also into the future. So have you personally had an experience scrying before a, a, a blackened mirror? I have. And in fact, I trained with Raymond Moody on uh, black mirror gazing. Um, my first experience with him was back in the mid-1990s. And uh, I spent a day with him at his uh, home in Alabama learning how to, to mirror gaze and, uh, and the purposes that it could be used for. And uh, then I took some more formal training from him again uh, several years ago. I've had um, extraterrestrial entities literally come out of the mirror uh, and stand in the room. All kinds of weird-looking entities. Are you pulling my leg? You ETs actually (laughs) come out of the mirror? They're in three-dimensional form in front of you? 
Well, there, it's a clairvoyant vision, and this is um, a, a condition that is reported by other mirror gazers, too. And I think it has to do with the way the physical eyes sort of get out of the way when they, when they become fatigued by, by looking into uh, a surface like this. And the clairvoyant vision, uh, things can seem to be projected out of the mirror into the room, um, but for me, it's not seeing them with my physical eyes. I'm seeing them on the inner eye, but they feel like they're not in the mirror. They're in the room with me. Right, right. And, and this encounter with this ET, I mean, was it, was it friendly, I hope? Well, it was. And um, actually, it was one of these praying mantis entities. And <laughs> I, don't like, I don't like bugs. Um, but this entity was um, non-threatening. And um, with, with it comes a lot of information that's that's part of the psychic process too you 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 get impressions you get messages and uh, it wanted to convey to me uh, you know how this was a doorway to other places besides the afterlife so it was a very interesting experience Um, I used the black mirror to contact my uh, father uh, some years after he died and um, had some visions of him in the mirror. You, did, you actually saw him? Uh, sometimes, the, the yes, well, yes, in the mirror. And sometimes the, the impressions, the psychic visions, seem to be on the mirror's surface. I think what the mirror does is it's a tool that helps you access psychic information. So uh, sometimes people report that the mirror surface begins to ripple and, and shift and uh, look like, it turns kind of a milky gray, and I've seen that where the, the surface actually seems to change. Uh, and you can get fleeting uh, images of people and places, almost like that uh, hypnagogic state of dreaming, which tends to be very kind of jumbled and with lots of voices and, and images in it. Which, so begs, it. which begs the question, Rosemary, how, how does one know that you haven't sort of hypnotized yourself? It's very difficult to draw the line, and in, in fact, hypnosis is, is a very valuable technique to get people to into an altered state where they can access this information. I do consider it to be uh, a genuine experience that we're not able to have when we're in a different brain wave in waking consciousness. We seem to be able to penetrate into these interdimensional realms and into the afterlife and the spirit world when we shift our brain activity and hypnosis is uh, a very good way to do that. Final question. I mean, you've been involved in, in, uh, so, in countless uh, hauntings, uh, investigations of hauntings, and, and oftentimes uh, you discover that some, a certain object has been brought into a home and that object is the source of the, of the problem. And how many instances would you say, that problem artifact that is an, an antique or what have you that has been brought into the house that, that has precipitated these hauntings has been, in fact, a mirror? It's one of the top ten objects. Uh, dolls are probably number one because a lot of people collect dolls. Uh, mirrors would definitely be uh, one of the more common objects because people like unusual frames. They like old mirrors. Uh, oftentimes they go to second-hand shops looking for inexpensive things. And uh, people decorate their homes with mirrors. 
when I uh, find mirrors to be a problem, and often it's in the bedroom, uh, simply by relocating the mirror, uh, the, the problem can be alleviated. I usually recommend that, especially if it's something that's been acquired secondhand, that uh, it be removed from the premises altogether. All right, Rosemary. Well, for uh, forewarned, forearmed, when it comes to uh, to mirrors, I mean they are attractive, but be careful where you buy them and particularly where you place them in the home. Always fascinating and uh, safe travels. Look forward to speaking with you next month. Thank you, Richard. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com, the website. Check it out. Some great stuff. Great information there. Coming up next, a couple of bizarre auto crashes on the M6 and and uh, in Paris, France. And we'll speak to the British author who's investigated those uh, amazing paranormal claims surrounding those crashes when The Conspiracy Show returns right after this. Boy, do we have a great story for you right now. A number of uh, interesting or bizarre, I should say, car crashes that took place back in 2010 uh, along the M6. This is a motorway in uh, near Birmingham, England, and a similar uh, crash that took place in Paris, France. So imagine, you've got these multi-vehicle uh, car pileups, and the cars at the sort of the, the center of this, this, uh, this carnage, they didn't find any drivers in there. So there's this whole sort of paranormal aspect uh, to these car crashes that have become known as the Paris and M6 crashes, uh, and it's become sort of legendary. Now, up until a couple of weeks ago, I had never heard of these, but now you're going to get the whole story from a gentleman who joins us on the line from uh, the UK. Colin Hall is the author of Fact or Fiction? The Paris and M6 crashes. Colin, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you for having me. So, uh, let's just set the scene here. 2010, roughly, I think June, along the M6 a carriageway in Birmingham, what happens? Well, in truth, actually, it was late 2009 uh, uh, in Birmingham. And uh, what, what obviously caught my attention were these reports that were on the internet, but more specifically was the fact that the lead vehicles in that crash um, contained no evidence of bodies. No blood, no tissue, nothing. Nothing at all. There and was, there was and these, were, these were horrible wrecks, right? These cars were destroyed. Well, again, um, according to witness statements, uh, they, they were bereft of passengers, uh, bereft of drivers, and they created what is known as the M6 paranormal crash. Something else that was uh, interesting that was caught on closed circuit uh, TV that these, of course, lots of uh, security cameras in England. What did what did uh, people claim to see on the security camera? Well, they claimed to see a bright light, um, a bright light that flashed, um, and that was uh, spotted seconds before the actual crash itself. I mean, that that is the the reports that we read, and as I understand it. And uh, there was something else interesting. One of the, the trucks, one of the lorries, as you say, in the UK that was involved in the crash, something to do with its tachometer. 
Tell me about that. Well, again, a, a tachometer is a, is a piece of kit that tracks the movement of a, a lorry, an HGV truck. It tracks various different functions. Um, this one showed no uh, slowdown. It just stopped. It, it, was a, it was as if the engine had been switched off. There was no human uh, intervention. Stop. Flatline. So... This obviously must have had uh, the investigators, the police, puzzled. So, But how did this story begin to sort of leak out that there was this seemingly paranormal aspect to it? Some were even suggesting time travelers may have been involved. Well, this is where we come to the reporter Mark Collins and his reports. Um, to date, his are the only reports that have ever circulated about it. But during 2010, I believe he released about seven reports, starting with the M6 crash and then progressing on to Paris. He named uh, an individual called Detective Roger Silverton, who allegedly heads up some form of special investigation branch down in London. Um, and through an anonymous source, he was, uh, as he claims, uh, able to garner significant amounts of information that inspired him to write these press reports that we read. All right, uh, Colin, hold on. We'll take a time out. When we come back, we'll dig further into the Paris and M6 crashes with the author of Fact or Fiction, Colin Hall. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. We are back with Colin Hall. He is the author of Fact or Fiction, The Paris and M6 Crashes. Here on The Conspiracy Show, he's on the line from his home in England. So uh, you, were, you were talking about the, the, um, the, uh, police that was, the, the policeman that was uh, sort of cited as a source by reporter uh, Mark Collins. Tell me a little bit more about this, uh, this police officer. Well, there's not a huge amount I can say, apart from the fact I've got his name. His name is Detective Roger Silverton. Um, he is alleged to have headed up some form of special investigation team that are based in London. Um, there are very mixed messages about him. Um, as the stories progress, as the press releases keep on coming out, um, there is a complete rebuff about anything paranormal happening. And in fact, the claim is that it could have actually been an insurance fraud. So it took a turn from the strange to the even stranger, one might say. And how were the newspapers at the time reporting this? Did they make mention, or the mainstream media, did they make mention of the fact that there were no passengers, or drivers, I guess for that matter, in some of the vehicles that were involved in this horrible pileup? Well, that was the interesting thing. The mainstream media seemed to be largely unimpressed. What I found, and which is what got me interested, was a, a huge plethora of websites covering the story. Um, and then all of a sudden it broke onto one of the big local um, UK Newswire's uh, publication called This is Staffordshire. It went to every single county pretty much in the UK. And it became known as the, the Milky Way Motorway. And combined with the 14 Times report that, that concluded that this was modern folklore, um, I, I think I was thoroughly hooked at that point. Were you following this? I mean, did you become interested in this because you were sort of interested in it from a sociological aspect in terms of the way, you know, legends are propagated in the media and, 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 and the alternative media and so forth? Or were you sort of a, a paranormal buff who thought that there might be something to this story? 
I think I came at it from both angles. Um, I think the more I explored it, what struck me was the sheer amount of debate and discussion online that clearly um, Fortean Times said, you know, this, this is modern folklore. And it fascinated me how a story could, I think at one point, have something like two million pages indexed um, discussing this. And, and it went from the, this is absolutely cast iron and it's truth, it's a, it's a cover-up, all the way over to this is pure fantasy, um, with many in between. And then, of course, we had the video that came out, which which kind of divided even more opinion. What... What evidence, tangible evidence, aside from this mere hearsay that there were no drivers or passengers in some of the vehicles, uh, what evidence is there to support that? Well, well, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, apart from this this video that was um, leaked onto the Internet in early 2011 that purported to be of the actual crash scene, there is no evidence. There's no physical evidence. There's no police reports. There's nothing out there that we can hang our hat on and say this definitely happened. Tell us about um, that video. Tell us about the video. What do we see in that video? Well, what we see in the video is uh, it's the perspective from a particular vehicle that drives past the scene of the crash. And we see a selection of vehicles that are parked up. We see people out of the vehicles. We come to this big lorry. And then, of course, we come to this line of fire, which ties in with the original report that Mark Collins wrote. Now, of course, when you look at the video, the production quality behind the video suggests that whoever put that together, um, you know, it, there was there's something about the video when you read it or you watch it, should I say, that doesn't quite hang true, yet someone's gone to an awful lot of trouble if it isn't accurate to try and replicate it. And there are things in there like no oncoming traffic, for example, that makes me wonder what on earth this video is for. Well, I mean, obviously there was a crash, correct? I mean, that much we know. There was a crash in and around that period of time, yes. Uh, there definitely was a crash. Whether this was the crash or not is what we don't know. Ah, now, in the video, do do we see these uh, these vehicles that were near the front of the, uh, the the crash do we see these vehicles up close do we do we do we do we see the camera in, inside do we get a vantage point to see that there is no one in those in those vehicles well we do because i mean the, the people that were videoing it uh, simply just sped up and drove off they didn't like what they saw they were spooked in effect um, of course it's not every day that you see a line of fire across a a, a carriageway of a motorway and then when you go to see the, the vehicles expecting to see some sort of carnage, there's nobody in the cars. Well, it's shot in the black, in the pitch black. So we, we're limited as to what we can see, but we, there is no evidence that anyone's in those vehicles. And all we do see is people pointing at those vehicles. So one has suspicions that they're pointing there for a reason, although quite what we don't know. Colin Hall is with us, the author of Fact or Fiction, The Paris and M6 Crashes. Okay, so let's just hop over the uh, the English Channel here for a moment and talk about what happened in Paris. A similar crash, similar time frame? Similar crash. It was, well, approximately four or five months later. It happened near the Eiffel Tower, um, which had its own sort of bearings because obviously the, the French are very sensitive about anything that happens near their major tourist uh, attractions. Bright lights were seen, apparently witnesses... Uh, 
were claiming that people momentarily disappeared. Um, and then perhaps the strangest thing was towards the, the, the latter stages of Mark Collins's reports was the uh, allegations that someone broke into the morgue and injected some of the dead bodies. Injected them with what? Uh, we don't know. And I, I actually, during my research, because uh, I, I went into this with a very open mind, uh, I managed to get hold of somebody who worked for io9, who wrote an article about blood um, and, and post-mortem. And, and they said, we cannot think, obviously, apart from, from the obvious treatment of their body, why somebody would inject those bodies. Now, in this crash, there were fatalities. I mean, let's go back to the M6 crash for a moment. Were there any t- fatalities in that crash? None that we're aware of, no. Okay, but we, so we, we do know that there was a fatal car crash in Paris. There were bodies in a morgue. Were there other witnesses? Did anyone else in the Paris crash come forward to talk about it? Uh, no, in fact, quite the opposite. When I was in Paris researching it, I, um, I was given the cold shoulder on two occasions, which, which made me think until I corresponded with somebody in Paris who uh, was ex-military, and they suggested that anything to do with the Eiffel Tower, anything in that locale, um, is very much kept quiet, very sensitive. Interesting, interesting. Was there a video of the Paris crash? No, there was no video. So how did the two get linked up then? Uh, Who was responsible for making the linkage between M6 and the Paris crash near the Eiffel Tower? Well, this is where our intrepid reporter, Mark Collins, uh, can be. uh, We can point the finger at him because he was the one, again, who wrote the reports about the Parisian accident. We also get mention of Detective Silverton. Apparently, there was some form of communication between the two uh, police departments. So that is where they established the link. The MO, if you like, the the flashing lights, people disappearing, uh, bore a striking resemblance to what was alleged to have happened on the M6 several months earlier. How did the, uh, the time travel... Uh, aspect get involved? I mean, explain the linkage between time travel and these two crashes. I I think the the fact that people appeared and disappeared in Paris and completely disappeared on the M6, um, I think the obvious conclusion was, where did they go? Um, I believe that a lot of what came out of Mark Collins's reports, which is what I go into in my book, led people down a path to believe that. Um, and that's where I found the, the sociological aspect of this very interesting because Mark Collins was, was writing reports based on, on sources that he had, including this detective Silverton, um, and was effectively, effectively calling the shots as to what may or may not have happened at these alleged incidents. So in other words, uh, if there were time travelers uh, driving in a vehicle along the M6 or, or in Paris near the Eiffel Tower uh, and uh, realized that they were about to crash in order to avoid a certain death or, or serious injury, they essentially uh, time traveled out of the vehicle. Is that the idea? That is. That is exactly, you know, I mean, you've probably hit the nail on the head. And this white light uh, that was seen was it on a closed circuit TV on the M6, this strange white flash across the carriageway? Again, allegedly it was, yes, right. although the footage has never, ever been seen. The only footage that I've ever seen of that crash was the one on the actual M6 itself on the, on the YouTube, uh, on that YouTube clip. And again, reports of a white flash in Paris as well? That's correct, yes. And that, I think, is the linkage between the two incidents. The MO is identical. What what do we what else do we know about this uh, reporter Mark Collins? Who is he? 
Well, in my investigations, I found out that he had written for a website called Volo Legal, um, which seems to be a very small um, legal website that now seems to be largely defunct. I believe he had aspirations of being some form of a journalist, and I believe that he is apparently jobbing as a journalist in and around the northwest of England, but nobody's ever seen him. Um, there was a, a, a report from one of the restaurateurs that I uh, met in Paris, or should I say a, a small description of somebody who he believed could have been the elusive Mark Collins. But aside from that, no, I've had very little communication with him. Um, he clearly has disowned all these reports. He claimed that it was, uh, should we say, not good for him. But that is it. I'd like you to just take a moment and, and, and explain uh, a little bit about how your book is laid out. It's a very interesting presentation, fact or fiction, the Paris and M6 crashes, and, and, and uh, it, it's quite actually lovely to, to look at. I mean, it's it's not just, you know, a lot of text and, and maybe some, some photographs and so forth. Explain uh, the visual presentation of your book. I, th I think probably the best way to look at the book is it's a window into my mind and my thinking. And, and in this book are bits of paper and notes. Uh, there's scribblings, there's sketches. Um, there's, you know, for example, I go into the multiverse universe, uh, the multiverse theorem by Michio Kaku. Um, we look at other famous people such as Ronald Mallet, who are named in the 1 and 26 blog and in the code that has been connected to the whole thing. So what I try to do is take the readers through a process of thinking that I've gone through whilst I've been writing the book. But I'm mindful that nobody wants to sit there and read 100 pages of prose. That's boring. What I've tried to do is let people get under my skin and see what captured my imagination. Um, it's very much an open story, this. You know, it's, it's you know, it, well, I don't know. There is no conclusion at the end of my book. And I've said to people, you know, get on the blogs, talk about it, talk to me about it, because I don't have the answer. I just have the evidence that I've collected and put together in this book. Uh, very quickly, we don't have a lot of time. Uh, as I speak with Colin Hall, the author of Factor Fiction, The Paris and M6 Crashes, uh, explain very briefly what this one of 26 uh, 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 code was all about. Well, there's, there's a Twitter feed and there's a blog post or a blog spot, one of 26. Um, by the time I got to it, they were both in code. Uh, I've spent a lot of time trying to get these codes cracked. I can't, but they name strange things. They name the locations of various places across the planet, including Fukushima, including the Falkland Islands, but also they name places like the Galley Restaurant in Santa Monica. Um, I have absolutely no idea what the relevance is of that. They talk about historical figures as well. For example, Ronald Mallet, and then the famous writer Louis Sebastien Mercier, who wrote a book about time travel. Ah, I, Ron Ron Mallet happens to be a, a, a good acquaintance of mine, maybe even a friend. Uh, I've never met him face to face, but he's been on my radio show a number of times. And uh, interesting, so he showed up in those codes as well. Um, so, I mean, it, what is your? Uh, can you speculate? Do you think those? The, the people that were contributing to these codes may have, in fact, themselves been the time travelers, the people who avoided uh, injury in these crashes? It may well have been. I mean, you know, I've always said that the, any kind of code that is that clever and that bulletproof is the best code of all. It's, it's openly accessible. Anyone can read it, but I, I have failed to find anybody who can crack it. How do people get a hold of Factor Fiction, the Paris and M6 crashes, Colin? 
Uh, they can go to Marcosia, to their website. It's also for sale on Amazon. It'll be for sale on Kindle, Nook, Kobo, uh, and iBooks come next week. So, yeah, they can get it pretty much in most places. Colin, it's a fascinating, uh, a fascinating story. And if uh, you know, if there's any postscripts uh, that you can share with us in the coming uh, weeks, months, or even years, uh, we'll definitely have you on and uh, chat again. Thank you. Thank you, Colin Hall. Fact or fiction? The Paris and M6 crashes. And uh, we just have enough uh, time. I don't think we have time to work in some uh, some phone calls. But I just wanted to share a couple of stories that I have posted on the in the news section at richardserrett.com. Uh, of course, recently we just celebrated the, uh, I call it the Catholic Easter, which is a kind of a misnomer. Obviously, uh, Protestants also celebrated uh, Easter uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the Eastern Orthodox Easter is coming up. It's actually, I believe, on May the 1st uh, this year or the very end of April. It's as late as it can be, and I've never quite understood why. Um, there's such a disparage or a, a discrepancy rather between the two Easter's and some, uh, some years they fall on the same, at the same time. However, uh, every year around this time, I usually work into the discussion at some point, the shroud of Turin, which I believe, uh, to be the actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ. And further that it in fact, uh, contains evidence of some sort of physical resurrection now, scientists have been back and forth on the shroud. Of course, we had the, uh, the carbon-14 uh, uh, tests back in the, uh, the late 1980s, uh, 1988, in fact, which supposedly uh, dated the shroud or the linen, the linen cloth, somewhere between 1260 and 1390. Uh, and for many scientists, that was case closed and proved, for them at least, that the shroud was, in fact, a forgery, a medieval forgery. Uh, I never believed that. And uh, a, a number of pieces of ev- evidence have come out in the last five, six years, uh, or even going back a little bit further, uh, that highly suggests the carbon-14 tests performed in the late 80s were faulty. They were, in fact, using a sample of the linen or a piece of the linen uh, which had been contaminated by fire. Uh, in fact, some researchers speculate that the sample that was pulled uh, for the carbon-14 test was, in fact, a piece of uh, linen that had been woven into the into the tapestry or into the rather into the uh, the shroud um, in the Middle Ages after the shroud had been damaged by fire. So now we have this uh, report. Uh, that's been carried in the, uh, the the Telegraph in England, suggesting that the shroud is not a medieval forgery. The Turin shroud, long claimed, um, has long incl- uh, been claimed rather, but it could, could but could in fact date from the time of Christ's death, according to a new book. Experiments conducted by scientists at the University of Padua in northern Italy have dated the shroud to ancient times. This is the latest now, a few centuries before and after the life of Christ. Many Catholics believe the 14-foot-long linen cloth, which bears the imprint of the face and body of a bearded man, was used to bury Christ's body when he was lifted down from the cross after being crucified some 2,000 years ago. The analysts, or the analysis, rather, is published in, in a new book, Il Mistero della Sindone, or The Mystery of the Shroud, by Giulio Fanti, 
a professor of mechanical and thermal measurement at Padua University. The tests will revive the debate about the true origins of one of Christianity's most prized but mysterious relics and are likely to be hotly contested by skeptics. Scientists, including Professor Fanti, used infrared light and spectroscopy, the measurement of radiation intensity through wavelengths to analyze fibers from the shroud, which is kept in a special climate-controlled case in Turin. The tests dated the age of the shroud to between 300 B.C., and 400 AD. The experiments were carried out on fibers taken from the shroud during a previous study in 1988 when they were conducted to carbon-14 date dating. Those tests, conducted by laboratories in Oxford, Zurich, and Arizona, appeared to back up the theory the shroud was a clever medieval forgery, suggesting it dated from 1260 to 1390. But those results were in turn disputed on the basis that they may have been skewed by contamination by fibers from cloth that was used to repair the relic when it was damaged by the fire in the Middle Ages. Mr. Fanti, a Catholic, said his results were the fruit of 15 years of researcher of research. He said the carbon-14 ta- dating tests carried out in 1988 were false because of laboratory contamination. So, the debate continues. It is not case closed. And I remain convinced the Shroud of Turin is, in fact, the burial cloth of Jesus Christ. Thanks, Tim Spreen, for production. Back next week, Patty Greer on Crop Circles and Ron Patton, the editor of Paranoia Magazine. In the meantime, don't be afraid. Nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.